I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 15 as we continue our series here. Solomon's quest. Hear now the word of the Lord. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Our great God and Father, we thank you that you have ordained for us to be here now, to hear these words. Speak to our hearts by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, I made the point that these verses here, 9 to 15, are part of really one unit, beginning in verse 1 through to verse 8. And that one unit takes us back to the very beginning of the book. If you recall, in verse 9, Solomon asked this question, what I just read, what gain has the worker from his toil? That should sound familiar. It's also the same question he asked in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? But now Solomon has changed his answer. And his answer has changed, not because he's wishy-washy, but his outlook has now changed. Here in chapter 3, the first 15 verses, he's no longer looking at life under the sun. That's what we pointed out. He has brought God into the picture. And and this gave him a new perspective on life, a a heavenly perspective on life, a a Godward perspective. He's now, through the eternal lens by which to view this work, he sees it differently. And God has given to the children of man to be busy with this work, and now he sees that through the lens of God. And so his quest that he's gone on from the beginning of the book has not changed. Only his gaze has changed. He began to look upward. And so now he sees that from birth to death, that life and every event in it between it is not actually monotonous, as he said It's not really meaningless. There is a sovereign God who's accomplishing his purposes, his divine purposes. God's timing is perfect. And even though we may not always understand what he is doing, we can know that everything will be beautiful in its time. That's what Solomon says, verse 11. He has made everything, everything, everything beautiful in its time. The everything of verse 11 refers back to the everything of verse 1. For everything there is a season. 
Every matter, everything, every event, even the most difficult circumstances in your life are beautiful in its time. And so all the sorrow we experience, all the restlessness and all the confusion that the events of life can produce in our hearts and minds can be an actual cause for joy and praise when we acknowledge and submit to the timeliness of God's sovereignty. And see, to do that, we must see it from what, for what it really is. All the events, everything you're going through, good, bad, even evil things in their time is a gift from God in our lives. Look at verse 10. I have seen the busyness that God has given, the busyness, and, and, and to the children of man to be busy with. Now, it's a strange gift. It seems like a strange gift, the business of life, but it, it's God's gift. And, and, and if we willingly and believingly, as one writer said, accept these life events, all of them, as coming from the sovereign hand and the perfect timing of our Heavenly Father, we will have a better attitude toward the burdens that we face. And we sometimes are called to bear these burdens, but we'll have a different way of looking at them. In fact, we'll see them as beautiful and, and a source of delight. And that sounds impossible, but it can happen. See, now if you turn to verse 11, Solomon says, I've made everything beautiful in its time. Everything. He's not so much thinking of visual beauty. That's how the word began in the Old Testament. When you, when you look, say, in Job 42, it said that uh, Job's daughters were the most beautiful women in the country. Hell, over time, that word developed and has a wider meaning. As something beautiful is something that is good. Something beautiful is, is something that is right. Something beautiful is something that is pleasing and something that is appropriate. And that's how it's used here. God's timing is good. God's timing is right. God's timing is pleasing. God's timing is appropriate. He knows when it's good to plant and a good uh, to pluck up. He knows when it's right to weep and a right and right to laugh. He knows when it's pleasing to mourn and, and pleasing to dance. He knows when it's appropriate to kill and appropriate to heal. He even knows when it's beautiful to be born and beautiful to die. Everything, everything is under his sovereign superintendence and, and providential care. Now, when I first uh, preached this um, at another church, I was reminded then, and I'm reminded again now, of a testimony of, of James Boyce, uh, Dr. Boyce, pastor at 10th Press. And Dr. Boyce uh, heard that he had cancer. And it was the last time he was to publicly speak to the congregation he pastored, and he pastored that church for 32 years. He gave his testimony and then the benediction, and then he stepped off the platform, never to return again. Well, about halfway through his testimony, this is what he had to say. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, speaking of his life, speaking of the cancer, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel, he said. We have talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. 
When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. It's not the answer given in the book why bad things happen to good people. God does everything according to his will. He says, we've always said that. And that's what he always preached. And then he goes on to say, but what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. He's in charge, but he just doesn't care. He goes, but that's not it either. God is not only the one who is in charge, but God is also good. Everything he does is good. And what Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says is that we have the opportunity by the renewal of our minds, that is how we think about these things, to actually prove what God's will is. And then he says his good pleasing and perfect will. Yes, it's good, pleasing, and perfect of God. Of course, he says, he says that, but it's also good, pleasing, and perfect to us as he faced death with can- by cancer. If God does something in your life, he asks this question. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do. And just a few months later, Dr. Boyce passed. But you get his point. Do you trust God's timing for the seasons of your own life? Are are they beautiful to you? Or do you just consent to it? That's what the disciples did. They just consented to it. Remember, Jesus was preaching, and he was saying some hard things, and and the people weren't liking it, and the disciples come to him, and they're a little upset, saying, you know, maybe you should lay back on some of the things that you're saying. And and notice that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you're right. we got to win the people over. I guess I better water down this message. No, he doesn't say that. He goes, well, do you want to leave also? Go right ahead. And Peter answered, well, there's really nowhere else to go. I don't like it, but what else can I do? He was indifferent. He was indifferent. Is that how you view God's timing? Might as well not fight it. I mean, I didn't ask for this. What's the use? I can't do anything about it. Or are you willing to acknowledge, even when it comes into your life and what is evil, and we're not saying these things that happen that are evil actually are in themselves good. We're saying that God uses them in your life in that way and makes it beautiful in its time. Are you willing to do that? Maybe you've heard the illustration. I'm sure you have the tapestry uh, you know, often our lives seem to be like the backside of a tapestry. You know, a tapestry is a tangled mess. You have all these knots, and, and the colors don't mesh, and, and there's loose ends, and there's unraveled knots, all this mess in the back of the tapestry. And that's the perspective we often have when we look at our life. There's no related pattern. Everything seems to possibly be a mess, especially when hard times hit us. But seen from a heavenly perspective, we are truly, when we see it that way, we see the right side of the tapestry, each of our lives. Each of our lives, even in the midst of the tangled mess in the back, each of our lives is a masterpiece being woven together by our beautiful creator, God. See, put bluntly, 
Every ugly event that comes into your life in God's timing is good, right, pleasing, and appropriate. The tangled mess, says one writer, is part of and what God uses to make our lives beautiful in his time. That is the the reality. God has a beautiful sense of timing. Now, as true as that is, as we think about it, we need to say that having a heavenly perspective doesn't always answer all the questions we may have when we look at our lives and part of the tangled mess. And if we're honest, we'll admit that often there are times we, we just don't appreciate God's timing. And Solomon understood this. He knew that we'd go through that. He knew that when, when things came into our lives, as much as we could stand back and theologically say God's in control, that we don't like it. But look at the rest of verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, as most commentators point out, eternity in the hearts of man refers to the capacity for us to experience something larger and and greater than just the succession of seasons and times that Solomon has talked about, those things that are uncontrollable. Human beings created in the image of God have the capacity for eternal things, some things that transcend the immediate situation that you're facing right now. God has, has planted in your heart this sense of eternity, and, and you can't escape it. You can't escape it. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy this deep desire that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. These desires we have that are never fulfilled are meant to point us somewhere else. And the real thing, the, the, the main thing, the larger thing, the greater thing is what? It is eternity. We cannot be satisfied apart from God. But there is a problem with that. This sense of eternity does not bring with it a full comprehension or understanding of God. Solomon says, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so, that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so there's a conflict, as it were. We're we're caught between time and eternity. On the one hand, God has put the sense of all things eternal into our hearts. We have that drive. We have that desire. It's there, and it's in everyone, by the way. And we long for everlasting life with God. On the other hand, we're still time-bound. We're still stuck this side of eternity. Eternity in our hearts gives us a deep desire to know what God has done from beginning to end. But we're finite creatures, and we just don't apprehend it all. And so it gives us this frustration, this restlessness. This is why you can never be satisfied with the things Solomon brought up in the beginning of the book. Your achievements, your endeavors, your your worldly pleasure, wisdom, work, and wealth, none of these things will ever be enough. 
St. Augustine has said, our hearts will always be restless. They will always be restless until they find their rest in God. Only in eternity will, will we begin to understand the, the total plan. Only in eternity will we see the right side of the tapestry. Now, as a, an important aside, and it's important, let me address those that are here or are listening who, who have not embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You, you don't believe in the biblical God. You, you have not become a believer. Let me address you so you understand what's going on in your life, biblically speaking. You can never be fully fulfilled. You can never have complete and true joy and contentment. That's what this means. God won't allow it. He, he created us with a sense of eternity and with a desire for the divine. Oh, we suppress it. That is true. We often do that. We also push it away. Um, and, and we don't want to submit to his will, but until you submit to his will, you will never be satisfied. You will always be restless. He, he, Solomon showed it. All the rich and famous have shown it, that they're never satisfied. And more importantly than that, the fact that you're never satisfied this side of heaven, you could hold a fist to God and say, why did you make it this way? But understand, biblically speaking, you're accountable to that God because you're without excuse. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then he goes on to say, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you hear that? They knew God. They knew him. To reject what you know, and Paul says that you know the biblical God. You say, well, I can't know him. Paul says, you already do. You just suppress it. You press it down. You're rejecting what you know, and to reject that knowledge he has placed in your heart of himself, to reject that eternity in your heart is to become what? Futile, Paul says, in your thinking. As wise as you may be, unbeliever, Paul says, you are a fool. You're foolish. You're remaining in darkness. You are under the wrath of God. And the only way to escape is to accept the, the gift of salvation that is found in Christ, that undeserved gift that God the Son came from eternity which we long for, and he entered time, and he took on flesh so that he could be your substitute and die for you and, and live for you. He could take the darkness of your soul due to sin and replace it with the light of his righteousness. And see, when you receive Jesus Christ and his forgiveness, far from hampering your life, I've heard it over and over, oh, I couldn't be a Christian, all the things that it takes away, the fact that he controls your life, now you have the freedom as a believer to live today and to wait for tomorrow knowing that Christ's agenda, God's agenda, is always, always, 
always what's best for you. And so if you're here and you said, I, I've just put it off, I, I, don't, I don't believe it. Don't leave here this morning with that restlessness. Place your rest, I mean rest yourself in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. Well, in light of all this, in light of the fact that every event, every event that comes into our life is governed by God's providential care and hand, in light of the fact that each one of these events is good, right, pleasing, and appropriate in His timing, in light of the fact that God has placed eternity in our heart, and in light of the fact that we can't comprehend that, this side of eternity, Solomon says, let me give you a proper way to respond to those truths. Notice that he uses the word perceived in verse 12 and verse 14. Uh, uh, he has two main points. We're going to look at it in three, but he has two main points. I perceive that, he said, and I perceive that in verse 14. And here's his first point. He calls us, in light of all these truths that we talked about, he calls us to enjoy life and, and take pleasure in our toil, recognizing that it's the gift of the sovereign Lord. And we do that how? By doing good works for his glory. Look at verse 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Back in, back in verse 10, Solomon talked about the business that God has given the children of man. Here he tells us how to go about our business. This is how you do it. You do it joyfully. You do it energetically. You do it with gratitude. And you do it for God, for his pleasure, and the opportunity to serve him. When Solomon says to do good, he's using the words to do good works. He's not talking about earning our salvation, like you could do good works and then he'll be pleased with you. What he means is that those of us who have been redeemed, those of us that, that have acknowledged that that eternity in our heart, that restlessness points us to Jesus Christ, those who are cared for by God's sovereign hand, we should take the work that God has given us to do and do it heartily unto the Lord. Paul says this in Ephesians. He's going to emphasize in Ephesians, you cannot be saved by good works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works, he says. But then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship. We are his tapestry being woven together, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In eternity, God prepared for his children to walk in good works, in here, in time, in space. And so do good works and do them joyfully and energetically with gratitude to God, with the pleasure of being able to serve him. That's Solomon's first response to all these truths he discovered. He calls us to enjoy life, take pleasure in our toil even, recognizing that it all comes from the sovereign hand of the God who loves us and brings him glory when we do that. Well, second. The second response is to fear God as the sovereign Lord who does whatever he pleases and accomplishes all that he pleases. Look at verse 14. 
I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing could be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. Now, now to fear before him simply means not to be frightened by him. Although if you are outside of Christ, you should be frightened by him. This will come in judgment someday. But if you're a believer, the fear before him is to have faith in him. To fear before him is to say, I recognize that despite all that's going on, God is in control. Even when I don't understand, I understand that God is in control. It's to have faith that he's, he's working in your life and he's watching over you. The fear before him is believing that he knows all things, ordains all things, even our trials as well as our joys. Martin Luther said, this is what it means to fear God, to have God in view, to know that he looks at all our works and to acknowledge him as the author of all things. Every little thing, every event, every one. See, Solomon wants us to comprehend. He, he wants us to understand that God, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the toils of this world, good and bad, God is there. And that he is good, that he is generous. And it's only when we look at life in this way that it will make sense and, and it will have true fulfillment. That's what it means to fear God. And, and the fruit of it, what's the fruit of it? It's joy, it's contentment, it's purpose, and it's fulfilling, a fulfilling life. That's the fruit. Ultimately, it is what gives meaning to our lives under the sun. And so fear before him. That was his second response. To fear God as the sovereign Lord who does whatever he pleases and accomplishes all and that he pleases. Well, third... Solomon calls us to respond by acknowledging that the sovereign Lord will redeem the past, guaranteeing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's see what he means here. Look at verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Now, in verse 9 of chapter 1, Solomon says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be we will be done, we'll be doing, Ecclesiastes 1.9. What he's saying is basically the past seems to repeat itself so that there's no new thing under the sun. And he, uh, but see, now we read this in our text and we see that, that God can, uh, can break into history and do what he pleases. If you're unsure about that, look at the miracles. You know, we are told the sun rises, the sun sets. The sun rises, the sun sets. Unless God miraculously stills the sun for someone like Joshua. You know, someone lives and then they die. People live and then they die. Unless Jesus speaks and he calls forth Lazarus from the grave, Lazarus come forth and he comes forth and he lives again. God can break the cycle of life. It's not so much a, 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 a prison, says one writer. It's more of a pattern. Yes, this is how things come and go, come and go, and you can almost bet on it. It'd be good statistically to bet on it, but God can break into that existence. 
And so acknowledging that God is not bound by this cycle of times, that he is sovereign of the events, should cause us, should draw us to have faith in him all the more. What seems to be so unbreakable, life, death, time, sun rising, uh, the, uh, the sun setting, all these things, what seem to be so unbreakable, our God can break the cycle. Here's the point. All the events that come into your life, all these events that are outside your control, are not to drive you to despair. They did Solomon earlier in the book, and they drove him to despair when he was looking at life from under the sun. But what they're to do with God in your life is to press you to say, this is so terrible. This event is so terrible in my life. I can only hope in God because he's the only one that can change it. God is in heaven, the psalmist says, and does what he pleases. Psalm 115. And what does it please him? It pleases him to take these events that are in your life, good, bad, ugly, take these events and redeem them. That's what Solomon means when he says, and God seeks what has been driven away. God will redeem even the past, things that we've long forgotten. Uh, By his grace, says one writer, he will recover and restore what seems from our vantage point lost forever. All those good works that came and went and nobody noticed that you did, they're not forgotten by God. All those sins that you thought you got away with, they're not forgotten. All those trials and tribulations that we endured and have been ignored will someday be redeemed. All of them. So we labor not in vain. We labor not in vain. We may forget, but God will never forget. He will never forget. And so Solomon here calls us to respond by acknowledging that the sovereign Lord will redeem the past, and that's what makes all the work for the Lord not be in vain. And so as you consider the seasons and times of your life, Remember, God will redeem the past. Remember that you labor not in vain. Remember to fear him. Remember to enjoy the life God has gifted you with, using your time to serve him. And remember this, your life, this isn't just a quaint saying you put on a Hallmark card. This is the God that created the universe saying, your life is a masterpiece being woven together by our sovereign, by his sovereign hand. That's the reality. Well, look again at verse 14. Let me close with this. You may recall that the other week I suggested that the practical fruit of God's sovereignty over the times and seasons is worship. I I made mention to it. And that's Solomon's main point. Verses 1 to 15 can really be summed up like this. Solomon is trying to convince us to stand in awe before the sovereign Lord. To stand in awe before the sovereign Lord. To fear him also means to stand in awe of him. Well, if this is true, then there's no better way to use your time under heaven than by worshiping the God who controls every aspect of your life. Every activity under the sun, every activity of your life. 
God has put eternity in your heart. And so the best way to express your heart is by worshiping him. And see, this is why a day like today, a Sunday in particular, corporate worship, is a gift to us. Because it gives us one day in seven, just one day, actually you could say one hour almost in seven days, to come together as believers, and maybe in amongst unbelievers, but as believers and express in praise and, and express in thanksgiving what has been embedded in our hearts, to, to let it out, as it were. And, 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 and so it could be spent, as it were, for God himself. We're going to spend eternity worshiping God. But until then, on this side of eternity, we're never going to be content. We're never going to be joyful. We're never going to be at peace unless we worship our creator. In so many words, that's what Solomon is saying. If we don't at the very least gather for the Lord's day, we will very easily get caught up with the things of this world. And they'll drag us in and begin to work in our hearts as Satan often does, as the world and the flesh do, telling us, no, see, it's all meaningless. It's all vain. And so worship, individual worship, yes, but especially corporate worship helps us every week to keep our focus on our eternal, sovereign God. It helps us not to lose sight of what is really important, what truly gives meaning in life. And so the point I'm making is that you should be here. You are. Here you are. I'm glad you're here. You should be here. If you're watching and you couldn't make it, I'm glad you tuned in. If you're watching and you could have made it, come next week. (laughs) The point is simple. It's innate in us. We are called to worship. We're called to worship. And if you don't worship the sovereign creator of the universe, you will worship some image made in stone. It's our chief end in life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And only by worshiping him on his appointed day can you truly know contentment, joy, and pleasure. And so each Sunday, everything you did the week before, every event that that came into your life, all those things, good, bad, ugly, all those things are cause to worship. Because you can look back on everyone and say, God was in control of that. I don't understand that. But God was in control of that. He was in control of that. And he promises me he'll make it good. He promises me that he will make it good. And so are you willing to stand in all of him, accepting his timetable and acknowledging his control over your life? Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you again. First, by acknowledging how short we fall to this standard, how we always seem to look to this world rather than look to eternity. We thank you that you have been gracious enough and merciful enough to put this innate desire in us that that we would want to worship you, and then enabling us by your Spirit to do it. Help us to love you more. And the fine true fulfillment in you alone, in Christ's name, amen.